Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. Today's episode takes us to Tromsø in northern Norway to meet with Radovan Bust. Radovan is a research software engineer with background in theoretical chemistry. He has worked in France, Stockholm and now Tromsø, just above the Arctic Circle and at the border between science and software. Radovan is the co-author of the CMake cookbook and within the Code Refinery project he has organized and taught at several workshops. Together with colleagues from Sweden, Finland and other Baltic countries, he is also very busy building a Nordic RSE community. Hi Radovan and welcome to the show. What's your background and how did you become a research software engineer? Hi Peter and so uh, and first let me say thanks so much for the invitation. It's so wonderful to be part of this podcast. And um, how did I become a research software engineer? <clears throat> so my I think I always had a fascination with computers and computing and that started already around the age of 10 when we we got a Commodore 64 at home and we spent weekends programming sprites in basic and it was surprisingly much fun to spend an entire day to program like one sprite i think also ages 10 to 16 i think i spent in front of the computer uh, doing ms dos programming and gaming and i remember one really defining moment when i managed to open up a save game in a role-playing game and i managed to give myself some extra items through editing the hex code and that was really eye-opening and I felt I have so much power and control and uh, and then uh, I returned to computing much much later so I was really interested in school in physics and chemistry and math and I think thanks to great teachers so I had a really wonderful chemistry teacher and so I started studying chemistry I really enjoyed experimental chemistry uh, working in the lab uh, only later I discovered theoretical chemistry so then I did PhD, so I studied chemistry in Germany, did PhD in France in, in theoretical computational chemistry. I did then a postdoc in Norway, and this is also how I got then eventually into where I am right now in northern Norway. I later I did two research jobs. So I had I spent four years doing research in computational chemistry. And I started programming uh, with at the beginning of my PhD and which also means now that for the last 15 years I've been really programming almost every day. And so, um, but in my research jobs, eventually I felt a little bit, a little bit out of place. I, I, I was doing an okay job. Uh, I liked it, but I felt, uh, I felt a bit of lack of impact. I felt a little bit of guilt of being in a really prestigious position, but not quite feeling it. Maybe also a mix of like imposter syndrome and, um, Maybe I was lacking a role model in in RSE RSE type role model at that at that moment. I didn't know I didn't know anything about the RSE group. So this was maybe 2014. Mm-hmm. I felt I was doing okay at developing models in research, but I thought I was doing much better jobs at translating models from paper to code. But I felt that this is not really what counted for my CV. This is not what was really expected. So I changed job. In fact, twice. So I took I took up more and more computing. I moved to Stockholm. I moved back to Norway, back to Tromsø, where I am right now. Uh, did more 
high-performance computing, took up more teaching, maybe more about it later, more cross-discipline, more support role, um, also more a supporting role for research groups. So for me, this was a choice. So it was not really a plan B. It, I really chose to to work more as an RSE, although at that moment I really didn't know the term even. I think I can mention maybe two defining moments that that got me into the RSE community. One was um, in 2014, we organized a one-week course in teaching programming tools to researchers. And that was a lot of fun. That was surprisingly a lot of fun. I really I realized that I really enjoyed teaching programming to, to PhDs, postdocs, researchers. And I felt this was really fulfilling to me. So I felt I'm really made, this is really the impact that I was hoping for. I could really see uh, the eyes opening and people like the lights turning on and uh, the participants seeing the possibilities. And this is what later grew into the Code Refinery project, which started in 2016. Uh, the second moment, which was really defining for me, was 2016. I uh, participated in the first research software engineer conference in Manchester. I don't even remember how I learned about it, but I was happy, very happy that I did. I also participated in this WISPI workshop just before uh, the workshop on sustainable software for science, practice and experiences. And then there I met people like me. So I felt finally at home. So I realized that, well, I'm not alone. So uh, there are other people who feel exactly like me and they solve the same problems and they arrive at the same solutions sometimes, or we can maybe share solutions. And it was a great community. And this started then other projects and other collaborations. So through the code refinery work, I met really many amazing people and and they started new projects, new collaborations, and and this is where we are right now. So this is how, how I really got into being a research software engineer. And I have to say that this is maybe not my official title, but this is how I self-identify. And hopefully also soon this in Norway and in Scandinavia, this will be really an official job title. When I talk to different research software engineers and when Vanessa talks to different research software engineers, how the stories show similarities in the way that people progress to be and become a software engineer in research. And you mentioned the imposter syndrome and also yes. um, the feeling that I don't quite belong. So I do want to, I'm interested in research, but I don't see myself being a researcher, I don't see myself writing papers for the rest of my life. I want to do software. And I, I think we probably have to come back to that later a little bit. But um, before we do, um, you mentioned chemistry and physics. And uh, I, I'm quite interested in your contribution to theoretical chemistry. So is there one project uh, that you could describe and uh, explain in detail and the kind of work you did there, in particular with respect to the computing aspect of it? So maybe one project that I can mention is uh, the Dirac program. So these days I've developed more smaller libraries, but back when I was doing the PhD, it was, I was working on this more monolithic code. It's a, it's a big code, a million lines of code, Fortran, C, C++, four main authors. There are maybe 20 contributors. This code is developed over decades. So this is a relativistic quantum chemistry code studies the effect of, well, the finite speed of light on chemistry, on spectroscopy. One could ask, so they, they mainly manifest in heavy elements, so because in heavy elements we have many protons. The inner electrons, they if we think classically, they move 
so they so they orbit so fast around the nuclear uh, nucleus that they they acquire a significant fraction of the speed of light, and we see relativistic effects. And then we can study them. For instance, we can then describe the color of gold. Why is gold golden, and why is mercury liquid? And try to explain these through relativity. And what what is really fascinating about this code is that uh, we can study something in the code that we cannot do in real life because we can modify the speed of light and we can ask questions like how would how would reality be if if the speed of light was infinite? How would chemistry be? It would be different. Mm. How would it be if the speed of light was slower? So we can modify this uh, uh, this parameter and study something that is not so easy to do in a in a real uh, laboratory. And what what I was doing there is I was working on implementing response properties. So uh, the study, how do molecules respond to perturbations when we place them in an electric field or magnetic field? And I was very interested in visualization of densities, charge densities, current densities, property densities of molecules. This code is it's a big code. It's not open source yet. Uh, these days, one of my main uh, goals and main work in this code is to open source it. This is not a trivial process to do that after like two decades of work with many institutions, but we, we hope and plan to open source it this year under, under a lesser GPL license. Uh, is that a Monte Carlo simulation then? So if like uh, you simulate the response and you, um, you try to emulate what happens if you change the speed of light, say? It's more of, um, so we solved the wave function, not not during, not using the Schrodinger equation, but using the Dirac equation. But then we add external external field perturbations and study how how does the density of the system change to these perturbations. And from these, we can then infer molecular properties and spectroscopic properties. Can I ask how the technology stack? I mean, what what are you using to actually simulate that? A large part of the code is Fortran, Fortran 77, but these days also Fortran, a lot of Fortran 90. There is, it's rather monolithic, but these days we are splitting off libraries. There is C, C++. We use CMake to configure and build. Uh, it's parallelization through message passing interface. And uh, also now we are adding some OpenMP. What else is there to say? Yeah, we use math libraries a lot, uh, BLAS and LAPAC. Uh, to do vector matrix uh, operations and to solve the eigenvalue problem. Uh, you, you mentioned CMake, and I believe that you wrote a CMake cookbook at some stage, didn't you? Yes, with my uh, colleague, friend, and flatmate, Roberto Di Remigio, we wrote, uh, I think two years ago now, uh, the CMake cookbook. And this is, it really started, uh, we got into the CMake business in maybe 2008. And over time, I have bought it a number of codes from like handwritten make files and handwritten configure files to CMake. And at some point we thought it would be fun to write up some of the recipes that we use in our work and hopefully they are useful for, for others. Mm, I'm sure they are. So when people go to your website, to your homepage, they see that you have contributed to a number of libraries on GitHub. If there is a single one that you could point out, which one would that be and why? Well, I think one project that I can mention that I like and use a lot over the years now is the Cicero project. It's a library. It's a Python mm -hmm. package uh, that can help serving uh, slides, presentation slides to give talks. Um, the nice thing is that I can now write the presentations in Markdown and I can put them on GitHub or GitLab or on a public place. And this library will 
generate the um, HTML presentation on the fly. It's rendered on the fly using, of course, I didn't invent everything on there. I'm just connecting Lego pieces. So it's using Flask and Remark, Remark.js or Reveal.js. So I can place my talk on, let's say, GitHub. And then it's rendered on the fly using Remark.js or Reveal.js. And all I need to do is I can, I can share a link to the talk. And the talk doesn't even exist because it's, it's generated on the fly. And then questions like, you know, can you please send me the slides after the workshop? Something that we hear at every workshop. Uh, these questions, we don't need them anymore. I can, I can just share the link. Uh, so these slides effectively live on Git and GitHub. And with this, some nice thing about that is they are versionable. And they are branchable, so I can I can branch a presentation, make modifications to it, and and share it. And maybe I can also share one one fun experience I had with this library is that I met I met somebody. I had a lunch in Stockholm. The other person just finished a talk from at the PyCon Sweden and was presenting using Cicero. And then we met there, and we realized that I was really happy to hear that this is actually used by other people, and and he was very happy to hear that I'm I co-wrote this thing. Okay, maybe one more fun thing about this library is that one can share a particular slide number. So instead of taking a photo and sharing the photo on social media, I can share one particular slide number. And one of the most amazing experiences for me in open source development was that, so I gave a talk once in Sweden with using Cicero. There was somebody in the audience who shared then one slide via Twitter to somebody picked it up found it interesting, but found a bug in my library, submitted a pull request before my talk was even finished and the person wasn't even in the audience. And so then when I finished the talk, I saw that I got a pull request based on somebody sharing it uh, while I was talking. I, th I thought it was amazing too, that open source and social media can do incredible things. I think that's quite fascinating because like you and like many others who give presentations, we've been in the same boat we do these presentations and you have to share them and and there are commercial products of course out there but i think you know something like cicero is certainly going to look out for it and use it because and you know ultimately we all be needing that and rather than sending massive powerpoint slides around i think it's a far better to do it that way there is another project that i think we talked offline a little bit earlier in the month and there is a new project involving linguistics and particularly dealing with misinformation now that sounds quite interesting could you tell us more about that yeah this is super exciting so this is a collaboration with um, my colleagues here at the university of Tromsø in the linguistic department and many others so this is a big project it's called uh, threat diffuser so threat-diffuser.org, the website exists since yesterday. It's um, This project will start in September, uh, funded by the Norwegian Research Council. So what this is about is this project will explore the role of soft information strategies propagated through uh, mass and social media. And it's about hybrid warfare. So not only like the warfare on, like the classic warfare on the field, but really the warfare through media and, and of course we, we we all know what this is about this is a big topic since now a number of years yes. and uh, this project will investigate the norwegian perception of russia as well as the russian perception of norway but the tools that we plan to develop because we want them to be generally ap applicable so this is a multidisciplinary project combining political science uh, linguistic media study so I'm, sm I'm a small part of it. I will do some programming. So there are many, many really aspects to this project. But what, what I will be working on and, and collaborating with is 
we will look at certain keywords in media, keywords like security, hybrid warfare, military, immigration, threat, climate change, terrorism. And we will do statistical analysis on these words. And not only looking at frequencies, but also of these words, their occurrences, but also how they collocate with other words, how they are embedded. Because one can learn a lot by studying statistically the company of the words within the same collocates. So maybe I can say an example. The example would be that if you look at the combination of external threat or internal threat, so we don't we look at threat, but also together with an adjective, and we ask ourselves how likely are these to appear together. So in a, in the Russian language, these two are twenty. 24 times more likely to appear together than in the Norwegian language. We plan to study these uh, these collocates then in Norwegian media, and we will try to connect the dots and detect patterns in how messages are propagated across social media, across news. The, the, the goal is not to find out whether something is right or wrong. That's really difficult, but it's more to, to signal when when a combination or embedding is unusual and then connect the path or the graph of this information across media. And I will be working on a lot of data wrangling. So there will be a lot of Python and text analysis and, and we need to, and cloud and, and also to develop a web app. I, I maybe fail to say that this project will go for six years. So our goal is that at the end of the project, there is a web app that users can use and, and apply to a Facebook post or a news article and, and analyze it using the tools that we, we will develop further. I have a couple of follow-up questions. The first one would be, so you mentioned statistical analysis. Uh, is this also something that would employ machine learning technologies? I think we will, we will use it. I also admit that for me, this will be uh, machine learning is a new, is a new field. So for me, that, that will involve a lot of learning, but we will also investigate along along this path, definitely. So I think this will definitely involve machine learning to some extent. For me, really a new new thing. Oh, which in itself is exciting. So the other question that I have is, who do you envisage the users of this tool to be? I mean, who's going to use, who's going to go to the website and check the content of, say, a Facebook page or a Twitter account? I think ideally the really raising the awareness among the general public. This will, of course, take a lot of effort and, and and I think an entire work package in this project is dedicated to to outreach, screen uh, to podcasts, and uh, we need we need to really um, make I think make making the general public aware that this that there is a problem. I mean, many are aware, but still uh, that that these tools exist. We will have to make them really usable. So we are thinking about uh, developing also browser extensions. So to make really a low barrier entry to to use these tools, really working a lot on, on on outreach, also explaining what has been done before, why this is important, what uh, how to how to critically review news and media. So ideally, I think the general public. I think that's quite interesting because you know that the social media kind of self-regulating, but then they're not really that doing that that well because uh, and it's uh, quite hard for them anyway. So I think it's quite good to see that there is an independent work going on um, that will help people like you and me check whether content is actually questionable or not and whether there's misinformation or dangerous information or extremist content. Yes, 
And also, where does it come from? Where does it? And again, we Indeed. will not be able to say it with hundred percent. But where statistically, where is it likely to be? Where was it copied from? And I wonder if you could share the link to that page now that it exists, only two days old. There may not be that much on it, but so that we can have it in people's minds. So I met you through Kjartan Tor Wickfield from Sweden, who got in touch with UCL earlier this year. I understand that you, Kjartan, and others are trying to build a Nordic RSE community. Could you tell us more about what this community is and how far you've got building it? So with uh, Tor, we met through the Code Refinery project. And just a super short detour about just two sentences maybe about the Code Refinery project, because this is really how the Nordic RSE started. This is a project where we teach programming tools and techniques to students, researchers, postdocs across disciplines, across the Nordics. And we do that in Carpentries style. So it's very similar to the Carpentries, but more intermediate, advanced level. This research software engineer community work crystallized around this code refinery project because, well, until March this year, we were really traveling a lot across the Nordics, giving workshops. And through this, we met many people who are interested in the, in the topic. We were, of course, inspired by the RSE community work in other countries like UK, Germany, Netherlands, uh, US, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, and others have been also to many people who are active in the Code Refinery project have been to the RSE conference. Uh, this is very inspiring. We know that this this work makes sense also in the Nordics. We here we have the same problems to solve that are being solved in in these other countries and in these other communities. So this we we knew it makes sense. And two years ago at one of the code refinery team meetings it was an in-person meeting in sweden we we simply decided that well somebody should do this and i guess we are the somebody <laughs> uh, and so we we decided well let's start it and let's see how it goes we we started very informal in co so in contrast to to other organizations we are not a formal organization yet we haven't done any of that like formal paperwork we will have to do it uh, but we wanted to first start the work and see how it goes and figure out all the like formal parts later and not monopolizing the topic in any way. We wanted to be really open and, and, and inclusive, but we wanted to start setting up a website, social media. Uh, we started with a survey uh, to get an overview uh, where are the RSEs across the Nordics. We, get, we got, I think, ar around 100, 100 responses. We have create a map where one you can put yourself on a map when you when you would like to be on a map of the RSE map. We think that one key to engage the community is to organize events. We had a constituting meeting. We had um, last fall, like a year ago, we organized a hackathon in, in Stockholm. We are now planning, we are really busy planning the, the first Nordic RSE conference. Maybe we can say some, something about that later. So there are local RSE communities in the Nordics. There is an active, a very active community in Trondheim, Norway, uh, also uh, emerging communities in Stockholm, Oslo, and in Helsinki, Alto University, Helsinki University. There are weekly coffee calls where people can meet and chat about RSE work. We have a very active chat where we discuss. This is uh, this is happening on the Code Refinery chat, but there we talk about much more than just Code Refinery work. And then with um, Richard Darst, uh, my colleague from Alto University in Helsinki, we have started a weekly stream on Twitch where we talk every Tuesday evening about 
Risa software, and we call it the Risa Software Hour. And we were super happy to to learn about the RSE stories. Mm-hmm. And now with the RSE work, we hope that others will join us. We can do definitely better at social media advertising. So one problem is a bit visibility. We need to do a bit more work to be more visible. Also involve better. We are pretty well connected in Norway, Sweden, but Finland. But we can do better at being better connected in Denmark, the Baltics. Iceland. And sooner or later, we will have to register an organization with a formal structure. We see that already now when organizing the conference that it would be nice to have a formal organization to simplify sponsorship and registration. So this will happen. It must be quite difficult, really, because a lot of the associations uh, that I talk to, they're within a country. But I mean, you're spanning different countries. You mentioned the Baltics, uh, so Estonia, Finland, um, Sweden, Norway, of course, and Denmark, and possibly Iceland. And I think that's quite a challenge, actually, to cover all these different countries. How do you manage to do that? It is a challenge, but I think in the Nordics, it makes sense to start cross-borders because the the countries are relatively small in terms of population, not not in terms of uh, size. It's easier to generate like a critical mass of people. Also, the, the other aspect is that Intra-country distances are <laughs> on the same scale as the inter-country distances. Uh, so as an example, just for me to go to the Norwegian capital, it's a longer flight than going from Oslo to Helsinki or Stockholm. And this makes it... The countries are also culture, culturally similar, uh, The also in terms of work, work culture. There is all, already also a lot of collaboration in the Nordics. And maybe two examples, the Nordic countries share compute resources when when doing for weather forecast, there is the Nordic Infrastructure Collaboration, which is the organization funding code refinery, which works across borders. So it makes it makes sense. Still, there are challenges. So one challenge is uh, visibility to make. So the collaboration is maybe not so difficult, but making sure that people know that we exist and that this is a thing. But then there are also bureaucratic challenges like if we get funding or sponsorship well where does it go to which country does it go to who will process it so that that can be a bit tricky we see that in terms of visibility uh, announcement channels and mailing lists they have different penetration in the countries so some some countries we reach less and we need to do something about it there is def- we can definitely do better at gender balance and diversity this is not cause not only this is not a Nordic problem only, but also something we we need we need to do better and improve. And but now that uh, everything moved from in-person meeting to video, I think the cross-border collaboration got got easier. There is no difference anymore whether I meet with colleagues across the across the campus or or in in Finland or Denmark. So I think it's getting it's getting easier, but we need to do better at making us visible and known. I think you mentioned visibility, but you also mentioned the bureaucratic hurdles that you have to climb over. And one of which, of course, is recognition by universities. So I think in the UK, if I remember that correctly, it took off after there were defined roles in universities, like, for instance, the one that I work for, which is University College London. Other universities don't have that. And we talked about this at the beginning that there are a lot of people who feel they belong into the research field, but they don't want to be proper research. Well, they want to be proper researchers, but they don't want to be exclusively researchers. They want to be primarily software engineers working in a research field. 
So how do you think you get the recognition in universities, that uh, in the Nordic universities, uh, that your role as an RSE gets recognized? And what do you think you need to do in order to get there? Very good, po very good question. Very good point. It's definitely uh, also the situation in the Nordics. There is definitely a problem with recognition. I think we are behind in terms of career path and recognition compared to UK, at least maybe five years behind. The good thing is we stand on, on, sh on shoulders of giants, so we will not reinvent the wheel, but we will use lessons learned from, from other countries. How can one get better recognition? Definitely a problem with credit, getting credit, such as getting co-authorship on papers. Uh, this really needs, needs convincing. Uh, again, visibility, making making this work more visible. And not only in, I think one thing is social media and podcasts like this one, I think this can really go a long way, but also making it visible to our like traditional research colleagues. And that takes a lot of convincing. But I think if we repeat really the narrative over and over, some, some of it will stick. And we need, I think also we as a research software engineering community, we need to do, we can do better at, marketing use cases and success stories and they don't even have to come from our own institution but we can point at hey look over there in uk this is it's working really great so maybe we we should try to do something similar over here because a lot of good work is being done and nobody knows about it uh, there are administrative obstacles to put rses on funding proposals and it's small things like that i think in the long term would be really great if we manage to have even funding calls that are aiming at RSE type work so that this RSE work is not only an afterthought. I think it would be also wonderful if we could have student interns and like visiting scholars that do RSE work for us for certain for certain time. This is completely normal in the you know, like traditional research, but it's it's quite unusual in in the engineering uh, part. And it's it's pity because people don't exchange enough And I think we, we, what, one thing we can do as RSEs also is to approach researchers. We offer help and advice and read a little bit between the lines and not only check off checkboxes. Some of the projects that I'm working on right now started because there was a dialogue. If we would have had done what, what the research, researcher has asked for, uh, maybe they wouldn't have gotten the right solution to to the problem at hand, and some of the projects that I'm now involved in wouldn't have started. So the, it's also about the dialogue. And I think one of the issues that you mentioned, which is quite interesting, is career opportunities in research. A lot of the people that did the PhDs and that did, in fact, or any kind of university career path that they had at the time, but since there was no research software engineering per se available, they left into the private sector. And I know a number of people who did that. So I think that opening up career opportunities for research software engineers in universities is quite a crucial aspect of actually getting the community going. Sometimes it, it takes a catalyst to get the ball rolling. And I think one of the catalysts that you're planning to do is a conference later on in the year. Can you tell us more about the conference that you're planning? Yes, we are planning uh, the first Nordic RSC conference end of this year to happen in Stockholm, two-day conference, December 1st and 2nd, to really bring the Nordic community together. And But this will be open to, we'd, we would be very happy to have participants outside from outside the Nordics. And because we, we are looking for 
invited speakers. Um, so we are planning, uh, there will be plenary talks about what, what RSE is, community building, community values, uh, research perspective, industry perspective. We are planning for a panel group session where we bring together the national and regional RSE groups to present and answer questions. We will have lightning talks, of course, shorter contributed talks, workshops, career, de career development. The size of this event we are planning at we will be we are planning at 150 participants. We have capacity up to 200. The venue is awesome. It's a very informal venue. Uh, it's a student union building in, in Stockholm. So it's really the opposite of a sterile conference venue. Uh, there's a lot of atmosphere, hopefully a lot of interaction. We have a great organizing committee and program committee. Um, we plan to open the call within days and registration is planning to open in September. Of course, there is COVID-19 and we are monitoring the situation and we may need to change plans. And it's not only about what, what we are allowed to do, but we will really do what is the responsible thing to do. So we may need to postpone. If we postpone, it would be until 2021. So the plan is not to switch this into an online event in case we cannot have that. Because we there is also Source, the international series of online resource software events. I think this is really a great platform for online RSE conference talks. We may have to move to, to next year. It is a challenging time to plan conferences. But if we if this this works out, we believe that many people in the Nordics and, and outside Nordics will benefit from participating. One additional challenge that we have is to convince those who may not self-identify as RSEs may not have, have never heard of R, what RSE are, but could benefit from it. How do we convince them to, to participate? That's indeed a challenge because there are a lot of people that are in fact RSEs, but you know they have different role titles and different. they wouldn't necessarily see themselves or they wonder, well, do I actually belong there? So uh, that's great. Thank you very much. So it's... Um, it's going to be a live conference, not an online conference. So, and if COVID-19 is rearing its ugly head again, then you will have to postpone to next year. So that's okay. Well, thanks very much, Radovan. I think we're now coming to the end of the podcast and I would like to close with two questions. The first one is if you look ahead into the future, far ahead into the future and uh, sort of, you know, when you retire, etc., and you look back to your professional career, what do you think a successful career would look like to you? So I hope that when I'm in 20, 30 years looking back, I hope I can say that the learning never stopped because I think learning is wonderful and that we never stopped learning new tools and ways. I hope we can say that the work we did within Codefinery and, and Resource Software Engineer community, that had, it had an impact on, on others and on research. And, and I hope we can say that research became more open and more reproducible, and that together as a RSE community, Nordic or international, we made a difference. And then hopefully we can say, remember and joke, you know, remember 2020 when we were trying to motivate RSE-focused careers? Remember when RSE careers <laughs> was a new thing? So hopefully we can say that. I'm sure we will. The last question is, so we talked so much about programming and science, but what do you do when you're not programming and helping research, etc.? Yeah, I really like this question, and it was also fun to to discover uh, when when I was listening to to a couple of episodes about colleagues I was working with. It's really fun to hear what they do 
when they are not programming. So when I'm not on the computer screen, I am uh, outside on the hills <laughs> and paragliding. So I live in northern Norway. There are 666 peaks above 1,000 meters just in this county. So many. And then what I do, what I do is I walk up mountains. I'm dragging up a 20 kilo backpack and hoping to fly down with with my paragliding buddies. And I started that three years ago. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, for me complete opposite of screen work because when I'm up in the air, I don't think about work at all. The only thing I'm thinking about is how to catch the next terminal and how to make sure that I don't crash into terrain and how like where is the next place I can land. And it's both energizing and really relaxing, very highly addictive sport. But uh, the nice thing is it's a lot of outside time and and it's very social sport. So that's what I do. Also, please let me uh, say one one f maybe final remark also from me is that I wanted to thank thank you, Peter, and also Vanessa for doing this. Uh, I think this is really wonderful what you do here for the RSC community with this podcast. And and please keep it up. And um, and what, what we can do as RSC community is to support this great initiative and we need to to help to spread the word. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, thank you for saying that, Radovan. Um, Vanessa and I certainly are going to keep this up and there will be more episodes to follow. And I would like to thank you, Radovan. It was a great interview and thank you so much for your time. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Peter. That was great fun. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that... Goodbye.